welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back. Thank you for listening and making a commitment to learning. Hope you all are doing well during this still crazy, crazy time that kind of feels a little like it's at a standstill right now, but at the same time, I know things like numbers are still climbing, this weird COVID-19 thing. I was going to say, it definitely doesn't feel like a standstill on my side of the world. I think only because like I'm home. Anyway, we are your hosts. Mm. Sorry before we forget. <laughs> um, I am Jordan Porter, joined by Yvonne Brandenburg. Hello, Hello everyone. <laughs> but yeah, no, like I'm at home. So like, and I'm still staying off of social media for the most part, like mm. not really following up. Like I occasionally, like maybe every other day, check to see like my county's numbers and stuff like that. And they're still yeah. climbing, but like, I don't know, I guess... It just doesn't seem like anything's changing because I'm still at home. And Well, and just if, if for some reason you guys are listening to this in the way future, uh, <laughs> we, we are talking about uh, COVID because it is the beginning of April 2020 when we are recording this. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's weird because for me, it's pretty surreal. I know we recorded that um, big COVID episode two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I think I said it was a matter of when, not really if. Um, yeah, something was going to spread in the hospital. Yeah, so I think out of all of us, my hospital is the first one to get it. Um, so we have, I think, two people now that tested positive this week. So we, and I think I mentioned this, um, we did not have a team B team. So in effect, all of us have been exposed. <laughs> so yeah, it's been been an interesting couple of days they closed the hospital for an entire day to you know do a deep clean and then when we got back on Thursday we did another deep clean and got things off of our desks that shouldn't have been there so we could spray everything down and and then it was up to individual people you know whether or not they wanted to come in or they wanted to self-quarantine and I went in because I was like, well, I've already been exposed. So right. um, <laughs> I'm not showing symptoms yet. May as well go do stuff that I can do. And so, you know, it, it's been challenging with less people than normal, you know, and uh, everybody's now required to wear masks because we're all potentially asymptomatic carriers of it. So, yeah. It's, it's uh, scary. It it is, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm just like, just rip the bandaid off. Just just do it. Just do it. Yeah, that's how I am. <laughs> but the cool thing that I get out of it is I um, commandeered an exam room to now be like my office space, which is kind of cool. Like we moved a phone from like our regular desk space from from mm-hmm. one of the computers over there into an exam room because our um phones are all um computer based they're not like mm-hmm. plug-in phones um so it's cool so essentially i have my own office at the moment which is kind of cool yeah that's, that's nice you know silver lining of everything and then i can keep people away because i can be like this is yvonne's room please don't use my phone or my computer because i'm going to be spraying it a lot and i will spray people if they get too close yeah yeah i haven't yet I'm still a homeschool teacher. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. I can't, I, I, I feel bad for you, girl. 
Girl, it's been today was not bad. Um, we successfully like made it through homework today without any tears on anybody's part. Nice gold ribbons all the way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did pretty good. Probably because like it was a very light homework day today. Like we mm. did very little, and then I worked on some special things that I can't wait to talk about a little bit more, but we're not there yet though. Not, not yet. Cause that's going to still take me a while, but I did, yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it and I'm super excited for it. And then let's see, we went on two bike rides today, one with the dog, one without, and then we went fishing and we went to like the skate park so down the road. Jealous of all the stuff you get to do outside. I, I told my, Ugh. I told Matt, I was like, I'm kind of getting used to this whole like unemployment thing, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, Oh, homeschool kids go on bike rides, go on, go to the, you know, on the boat. Jeez. I make pan- like homemade pancakes almost every day. Like it's unreal. Wow. And did you see all those strawberries I picked? That was, Oh my God. Yeah. I was so jealous. I'm like, I'm going to come over for a strawberry Sunday or strawberry jelly jam yeah i don't even know all of it looked really good the jam is really really good except for now we're out of bread and mm. um we made smoothies that? this morning nice so i went to the chiropractor today because he's fabulous and he just makes me feel so good um oh, nice. so yeah my life is pretty hard right now i mean the homeschooling is hard but like the rest of it is not <laughs> like yeah i'm it's it's funny because um Kevin and I, we have, cause both of us are essential employees right now. Um, we have this love hate relationship with the fact that we have to work mm-hmm. cause we're like, yay, we get a paycheck. Boo. We have to work and everybody else gets to like stay home and work on things. And I know grass is greener on the other side, but, but as I tell people at, at my work right now, I'm like, dude, I have so many things I could do with that time. I was like, Jordan and I, we got plans. I know. <laughs> I was like, I, I know. could be working on that stuff. And I was like, but I can't. <laughs> well, and it's funny too, because like I've been off for what, like four and a half weeks now and I'm just really getting into working like deep into stuff that like the potential for me to go back to work next week, I'm kind of like, no, not yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, but you got transitioned to be a homeschool teacher, which was a shock. That was a very big culture shock. And I was, you had some personal stuff going on, like, you know, that you had to take care of and yeah, which is this weird holding pattern, which is whatever. Yeah. So that was, (laughs) yeah, it was like the first two weeks were definitely a transition to like focus on like doing my health stuff and like taking care of that. Yeah that I didn't really focus on anything else. And then the kids were home. So those week, that like first week of the kids being home was like, ah. Yeah, girl, I spent two days at your house and I can't even imagine. It's exhausting. <laughs> we had a they sleepover last a night. Bundle of energy. Really? Dang. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And then I made strawberry vanilla pancakes this morning. I'm going to stop talking to you now. Then we did some homework and then we did all of our outside activities. Yeah. But you had homemade strawberry vanilla pancakes. Dude. So good. Mm, I'm becoming quite the homemaker, but only like in the mornings, like my husband still cooks in the evenings. (laughs) Hey, you you know, what is something else that's really good that has come out of this because you know, I can't really go anywhere. So 
Kevin and I did dinner out a lot because <laughs> we don't have kids. And so that's one thing we can do. But um, I have an Instapot and I learned how to use it. And yes. uh, I made some rice last night, which was very exciting. I was waiting for it to like blow up and it didn't. And so, your like homemade coffee. Yeah. Oh, oh and my coffee. My, oh, so <laughs> Jordan makes fun of me because I broke my coffee my coffee machine broke like the beginning of this week. And I almost like, I almost like broke down actually. Cause I was like, first of all, I need coffee in the morning. Like I just have one cup of coffee, but I need my coffee to just get my day going. And then I was like, I can't really go to Starbucks. I mean, I could. And I did the first day because I needed coffee and that's when it broke. Um, but I was like, I can't consistently do that. So then I made coffee on the stove because you know I didn't have anything else which actually wasn't bad but I'm very excited because my coffee machine showed up today and so I made my coffee this morning with my adorable little red Keurig I'll show you a picture sometime it's adorable yes because I'm the only one that drinks coffee so I just needed the little one so yeah I I splurged with some Amazon gift cards that I had and (laughs) got it because cooking on a stove top in the morning just it's not what you want to do too much too much effort jordan (laughs) especially when you just need coffee to function i just need coffee to function so i get to work (laughs) yeah so anyway so moving (laughs) after our like how's your week (laughs) it's been weird but hopefully everybody else is going well too yeah Hopefully. I hope none of our listeners actually have COVID. I feel really bad because I do hear it kind of sucks. Well, I guess it depends on the person because some people don't really show some symptoms, but yeah. And that's the thing. It's, it's this, it is how your body's going to react to it, your immune system and all that. And so most of us are fairly healthy. We'll probably be fine. Just have like Mm -hmm. regular cold symptoms. I was also very glad that I socially distanced myself from my parents this last week before I found out I was exposed. Yeah, right. Because I would feel like a complete jerk if I gave it to them. So yeah. So if you want to know more about um, COVID, if you don't already know everything, uh, listen to episode 23, um, which is our COVID kind of big episode. Um, and then also just let us know kind of, you know, what's what's going on in your clinics. We got a couple of responses from people. I think right now it sounds like most clinics are having drop-offs essentially of patients Mm -hmm. and not having clients come in through the door, which is awesome. Um, Yeah. I'm going to really like cry when clients are allowed back in the building. When you have to go back to normal. That's like how I feel about going back to work. I mean, like I miss work, but I'm also working on like work related stuff outside of work without actually being at work. So (laughs) I'm still getting my veterinary medicine kick, but like, Yeah. yeah. Without actually having to do it. But I do actually miss working on patients, but. Yeah. So you have the benefit of patients and then just talking to clients on the phone, which is great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of going into this week and man, these next two episodes are going to be near and dear to my heart. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This is a good one. So we started with basics of blood, right? Yep. And then I think you and I, we, we tossed around the idea of you know, cause we're trying to do like six episodes in a series. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, we talked about all the blood cells. So what do we want to do? And then this, we had talked about some other stuff, but this one we were like, 
This well, one was like always on the list would, and I'm yeah. so excited. And we did it. We split it in two because there's so much information and it's awesome. Yeah. So, all right, Jordan, what are we going to be talking about? So this week we are talking blood transfusions. Eek. Yay. <laughs> but it's a two-parter because I have a lot that I need to discuss in order to thoroughly go over blood transfusions. Yeah. And I so, think blood transfusions, it's not just internal medicine, right? It's, it's a general, I remember in general practice, I did blood transfusions. Um, so this one really, I think, covers every clinic you can think of. Exactly. I mean, you're going to do this in those places. Well, large animal technically does transfusions, but that's this not what I'm true, talking but about. It's, is, but it's a little bit different. I'm definitely talking strictly dogs and cats. Yeah. But all the rest of them, definitely. You yes. can definitely use this information, so. Yes. Cool. Um, so this week we're going to kind of discuss the history of the procedure just because I love it so much that I really like did go back and read about like how transfusion medicine kind of began mm-hmm. and then the to do's before any transfusion um, of what's recommended. And we talk next week, we'll talk about the actual procedure, all the different blood products, like when blood products are indicated and, and how to properly handle store and, and administer those. Um, so that is next week. So this week, like I said, it's just histories and kind of pre-transfusion rules, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Um, Good things to remember when you're thinking blood transfusions. Yes, exactly. Um, so diving into the history of this, just because I, I had a lot of fun with the history. Well, and I think it's cool to know where where this stuff comes from. Like, I think we sometimes forget the history of, um, of medicine, of the things that we do. And we forget that things are always evolving, right? So yeah, it's good to keep in mind that, you know, as of right now in 2020, this is, this is kind of what we do, but who knows, there may be some really cool breakthrough because, because they're always studying it. Yeah. So it, it's yeah. it's good to remember it's evolving and to always be learning and, and remember where things came from. So I dork out on the history too with you, which is, you yeah, know, it, it is was a lot of fun because <laughs> reading about like the like Xeno transfusions that were attempted and stuff like that is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So kind of getting into that, the first animal to animal blood transfusion was actually successfully performed in 1665 by Richard wow. Lauer. There were several. Okay, wait. Who's who the heck is Richard Lauer? He was a doctor who liked to test. So he's like a human doctor. Uh, yeah. Huh? I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's like the first animal testing. (laughs) Well, yeah, because veterinary medicine wasn't like it wasn't regulated. Huge, and he was like testing stuff like so when i kind of got into the details i kind of left it out in this in this segment but he was trying to test so he had several failed attempts prior to his first successful attempt obviously because that's how science works um but his main problem was trouble clotting like the blood was clotting in the tubes before it could make its way to Mm. the next patient right and so he was essentially working on a device to allow a transfusion without the clotting. And I think originally, because they didn't go into bags, right? They just had no. tubes from one patient to the next patient, right? Pretty much. That's crazy. So he essentially what he did for his successful attempt was he exsanguated a medium-sized dog. So again, he was just testing. Like he was just mm. kind of screwing around in whatever 
lab he was in in the 1600s. So it he bled a medium. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say that, but I wasn't sure. Probably not, um, you guys. That's not truth. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so he bled a medium-sized dog pretty much to the point, like, again, I left it out, but to the point of where this dog was pretty well lifeless. Like he didn't just bleed it and then be like, here, let me see what your PCV was. Like he just bled it until it looked almost dead. Right. Cause I don't, I, I mean, they didn't have centrifuges back then. So it's not, they, like didn't, they didn't do any of that stuff. He just, he was, yeah, no, he You're just like, Oh, you just look bad. Yeah. He basically bled the dog until it was limp and lifeless, but still breathing mm. is what the notes I believe said. And then, um, this is the crazy part. So he connected the cervical arteries of two large mastiffs to the jugular vein of the medium sized dog, mind you with tubing, Ooh. but like the way it like sounds like when I was reading through it, it, made it sound like he must have done like some sort of like cut downs and then like was able to, it was crazy. Anyway. Attached yeah. Cause to, I'm sure he had to see it. It's not yeah. like, wow. Yeah. So, so he connected two large mastiffs to the medium sized dog who was pretty much dead. Um, and then he did the transfusion that way and the dog did recover and there was no signs of like a transfusion reaction after that. And the dog in the, in the history of it, like within an hour was like back up to like jumping around and kind of playing. So no real like measurements behind like how much blood he gave. So like there were probably a lot of risks in there with like fluid overload and things like that. Not to mention like exsanguating the two large mastiffs, but, and one right, could have been positive they, and one could have been negative. It was I'm crazy. I was going to say, cause they connected to the artery. Yeah. Details here. <laughs> but then there had also been several like animal to human transfusions. And this was actually pretty big in like early human medicine mm. that, and some of these were actually performed by Richard Lauer as well, where they thought that if they bled an animal and gave it to a human, it could cure things. So he bled a sheep mm. and gave the sheep's blood to a lunatic man, quote unquote, lunatic man. So a crazy man. And that person actually did end up dying. And then the first like noted severe transfusion reaction um, was another man's second transfusion of calf blood. So he was given calf blood, like, I think it said three weeks prior. I don't remember what, oh, it was for like his wife thought that he had like a sex problem. So <laughs> they like <laughs> gave him calf Ew. blood. Yeah. Um, first transfusion went fine, but then the second transfusion of calf blood, like the guy actually exhibited severe epistaxis and had dark urine. So, I mean, we see dark urine when we give transfusion reactions sometimes like that bilirubinuria. Yeah. Um, and then he actually did die later, but there were thoughts that maybe the wife poisoned him. <laughs> so he didn't die immediately after oh the transfusion. God, he got, he got pretty sick like the first couple days after the second transfusion, but he didn't die <laughs> until like, I think three weeks later it said. Well, but uh, you know what though? I mean, okay. So <laughs> Yes, it is possible that his wife poisoned him, but we do know about delayed transfusion responses. So it is possible that they didn't know what was happening because they didn't, I mean, they didn't know about transfusion reactions. So we right? had some crazy, like, all of a sudden developed like an autoimmune disorder. Yeah. Who knows what? Yeah. I mean, like, there's no pre or post testing. Like, it was just like, let me see what happens. The beginnings. Oh. Yeah so crazy so yeah it it was insane so it wasn't until the 18th century though when uh or the value of transfusions for patients 
with severe wounds and hemorrhage were revealed. So like what, that's almost 200 years. Yeah. Well, in the seven late, like late 1700s or something like that. Yeah. I mean, either way, it's still, wow. well, like at 1665. Least still like a, so like a hundred years later. Yeah. Before people realize that like you have a severely hemorrhaging person and then giving them blood would actually benefit them. Well, but I mean, if you think about it, they, uh, they didn't really understand veins and stuff like that. I mean, you know, it was very taboo to be doing some of yeah. that stuff. Like it was considered black magic and um, yeah. We talked so, about that on one episode. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I get it. Like, they probably didn't want to do that. But then, you know, science eventually prevails <laughs> over crazy thoughts. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. And so, I bet you anything, if you were to look at the dates of it, I would bet there was probably, like, a war going on. And so oh, there was probably. probably you know, they were like, oh, severe wounds and hemorrhaging. Let's figure out if we can save these people. Um, yeah. I bet that's it yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. And then um, in the 19th century, there was a man named James Blundell. He voiced opinions on animal to human transfusions, um, just trying to make it known that it was probably better for humans to give human to human blood transfusions but a lot of people thought he was crazy for that thought and thought it was easier to kind of like bleed an animal and give that to a human just because why put another human through that kind of thing like it was just one of those things where like well yeah and i mean people thought like your essence and your humors and everything was Mm -hmm. in your blood too so yeah i yeah (laughs) i can see why they were like well we eat animals why would we not just take the blood from animals use them Exactly. Again, so a different thought process than now. (laughs) Right. And then in the late 1800s, significant work was done to investigate transfusion reactions. Mm. Finally. Um, So that's when it was like blood types in humans were discovered. And Landsteiner, it was a person named Landsteiner demonstrated like agglutination using serum from healthy humans mixed with other humans blood. So agglutination, if we, kind of go into a little bit more detail with that and where we know it is if you have that poor transfusion reaction or you mix the two bloods together and it causes agglutination then we know that those two types of bloods are not compatible so Lamb Steiner discovered that and and so that was a pretty significant finding for human medicine back then yeah but kicker here for veterinary medicine it wasn't until the late 1980s that the first commercial veterinary blood bank was established i mean it 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 kind of makes sense because if you think of like the history of our profession yeah like veterinary technicians have only been around since like what the 70s i think we said i don't know i'd have to look back at like one of our first episodes yeah i think that was like (laughs) so you mean we don't just remember that i mean not all the time right (laughs) But I, it makes sense that it wasn't until the 80s that a blood bank really happened. Um, because I think, you know, prior to that, we were still doing it in-house transfusions. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, it's like animals started becoming more family members. And so I mm-hmm. think people just were doing more blood transfusions. Well, and I think just like like you said, like elevating our profession a little bit more, it became more instead of just grabbing the first dog you found to bleed and give to another dog, like you were, you realize that, Oh, you know what? There's actually a better way. We should probably be doing this. Yeah. 
so let's purchase blood that's been scanned for diseases and, the, and we know the type of and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think it does make a huge difference, but I was very fascinated. And mind you, these are just like a few little tidbits that I pulled out from the history. Um, Where did you get all this, by the way? I, I, that's my- so, so this is from the veterinary transfusion medicine, like manual by Ken Yagi. Oh, okay. okay. That I have. Yeah. It, I was going to say, cause I've, I, that book, I mean, we've referenced it a couple of times. Yeah. We? Um, I really love that book, but it's a very good book. Yeah. It has such good information in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you guys are, well, if I'm, most of you guys are probably doing some kind of transfusion medicine in your clinic, it's, it's a great book to have on your shelf for Mm -hmm. referencing. So, um, if you don't have it, see if your practice will buy it for, for you guys. Yeah, exactly. So kind of moving into then our pre-transfusion need to knows our our blood types basics of understanding transfusions yeah for sure yes exactly so blood typing is kind of our first step that's the first step that we really should take and i know people will like say cross matching but and i understand that you don't really need to blood type if you're going to cross match but i still prefer to know the blood type (laughs) yeah uh, because it's simple it's a very simple so I think it, I think it depends on what you have in your clinic. I think for cats, a hundred percent of the time you have to blood type unless you already yes. know what the blood type is. Right. Yes. I think for dogs, it depends. Like if you have, if you have quote unquote universal blood, I think you yes. can get away with not blood typing your recipient. Yeah. But the first time you still have, yeah, you still have to cross match. Right. So, yeah. Um, but if you have still think- like pot, like if, if your clinic carries positive blood, then you definitely have to know what blood type because you can't give a negative animal a positive. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, I have it. Blood yes. typing. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to discuss kitties a little bit. So cats have four blood types. Three of them are pretty well known. One of them's not. Um, so they have type A, type B, type AB, and then type um, MIK. Which I Which call Mick. I call Mick too, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm not 100. Yeah. Which, by the way, when I read that, because I did read that, and I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, there's a fourth one now. But anyways, yes. I was like Jesus Christ. <laughs> so type A is the most prevalent. Um, that's the one that we're going to see most often. Type B, not so much, but type B, I find it so fascinating because it's like more geographically prevalent prevalent in some areas and obviously breed specific in some exotic special I think yeah it's funny because it used to be that it it, so when I because I ran a blood bank at my clinic probably you know like 12 to 15 years ago is when I was really doing it there and we noticed we had a ton of bee cats but they weren't the normal like breeds you would expect like it was just like a domestic short hair and and so I think you're right with the geographical I think what happened is right um we live in kind of a more affluent area so I think people got these exotic breeds and Mm -hmm. then they got out and then mixed into the population and so I feel like there's probably like a reservoir of bee cats in that area because we saw a ton of them which was crazy yeah, um, which is crazy though too because of like the antibodies of these cats. Like, 
it could potentially transfer in milk. So some of those kittens could have died. Mm -hmm. So anyway, which actually I don't get into that a whole lot, but I'm going to get into like the antibodies and stuff. So kitties have naturally occurring alloantibodies against foreign like red blood cell antigens. And yeah, that, so they're born with being able to react to the other blood type. Pretty much. I mean, like, I think it said like within, like by the time they were like six to eight weeks old. Mm-hmm. So kitties don't have a universal blood type. They just have a more common blood type. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, well, humans, I guess, kind of have a universal, but um, so type B cats given type A blood. So this is kind of what I was talking about with the the milk even. So a type B cat, if a type B kitten was born and drank from the type A mom, that could potentially lead to a reaction, which blows my mind too, because I'm like, but it's milk, not blood. But I read that. Um, well, but, it, but yeah, the, the, the antibodies, oh, I was going to say the colostrum in there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. so type B cats given type A blood can potentially result in like a really fatal transfusion reaction and it actually can cause rapid intravascular destruction of the red cells that are transfused mm-hmm. um which again like if the cat doesn't die from it it was a waste and you just made the cat probably pretty sick and crummy feeling for however long it takes to actually recover from it if it does recover yeah. versus type a cats given type b blood could have mild reactions and a lot of times there's premature removal of most of those transfused red cells so those will those red cells will usually kind of be removed from the circulatory system within five to seven days. So not a complete waste, but the body doesn't like it. So it is going to still get rid of those transfused cells that you just put in. So you could potentially still have an anemic cat in a week. Yeah. So your, your, your type B cat that gets a blood is going to be like that primary, like transfusion reaction, like rapid reaction. Whereas like a type A cat getting B blood, potentially could just have like that delayed response. So you won't see it necessarily right away. You'll see it over a couple of days. And, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly, like type B blood is so difficult to get in, in clinics. Like you don't have just an abundance of it. So most of the times you're not going to give a type A cat B blood. Like you don't, you don't grab the B blood out of the fridge unless you 100% know you have a cat that is B. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I don't even keep B blood in stock. Like I just order it if yeah. needed. <laughs> I mean, we definitely do. Um, and I think that's because we do have a higher population of B cats. Yeah. See, we, we don't, I've seen one B cat my entire career. Really? So, yep. um, I live in a household with, well, when, when I was living with my parents, I had, um, so my parents had two cats and we had three cats and I had, um, was it two or three? Two B cats and three three A cats. Yeah. Nope. And and they're all just like street cats. Nothing special. Yeah. The one B cat I saw <laughs> was like, I think it was just like an orange tabby. Like it was, yeah. and it was one of those ones where like we typed it because it was like borderline anemic, but not like needing a transfusion yet. Mm-hmm. And then he recovered um, without us really doing much i think that cat had i think that was like a weird one that had like a splenic mass Mm. and so we were preparing for it and we're like well shoot and then like too bad you're sick kind of thing with probably cancer otherwise you could be a blood donor right Um. (laughs) (laughs) yeah but um 
yeah so um needlessly say my two cats <laughs> they were definitely in our do- donor program and they got pulled a lot yeah yeah exactly and then the third type is ab cats they actually do not possess any aloe antibodies just because they have both antigens of a and b type blood already like on their red blood cells so i mean ultimately they should be given ab blood but due to the rare nature they can be given a type blood instead yeah just interesting yeah yeah which we we've seen one ab cat and we gave him a blood yeah i was gonna say uh one of my doctors she was getting her cat tested for the um for the program and she had an ab cat and we were like what (laughs) <laughs> like right? we didn't believe it and we had to send it to the lab to yeah confirm and everything we we're like oh you have an ab cat and at the time we were like we don't even know what to do with this <laughs> yeah right yeah i think we blood typed our one like three times yeah and we we're like okay well no it's got to be real <laughs> yeah and then the mick so mick is actually very rare too and they actually don't know a lot about it right now and there's no there's no in-house testing for it. So I did kind of leave it off of my notes just because it's not something that you're likely to come across. Yeah. When I was, cause I did a, um, I did a CE on blood transfusion or, you know, cross matching. And so if you guys are familiar with blood types, like cat blood types, it's just like, usually we think of it just as one, one serovar. So A, B, mm-hmm. A, B, right. Well, they're thinking that it could be, like a type A mic positive or yes, type exactly. A like a dog Mick thing negative. Yeah. So it's like more like a dog where we talk about like DEA 1.1 and TR7. Like if, if you, yeah. Anyways, but um, it was interesting because they, they found this in um, a university setting. I think it was, they were talking mm-hmm. about um, where they found that you know, you, you, you blood type cats and you say, yep, these are a cats. So they should be good. Well, when you do your cross match, like all of a sudden Mm -hmm. there was this like group that yes, they were a, but they weren't cross matching well. So, you know, it is possible that we have more of them out there that we just don't know about yet. Because when you do cross matches and you're like, damn it, I just blew through you know, five different bags of cat blood. And yes, he's a type A, but he's not cross-matching with any of these. You know, it is possible that you've got somebody who could be like a Mick positive or a Mick negative mm-hmm. that you just don't know about. Exactly. Because again, there's, it's, it's fairly recent that they found that I want to mm-hmm. say. And again, there's not really anything yeah. you can kind of do other than what you just said and cross-matching until you yeah. try to find that like good match but yeah that's one of those ones that which is the frustrating one right yeah yeah um versus our dogs dogs have over 12 blood types over 12 known blood types yes i I will say this because this (laughs) expands all the time dang it (laughs) right also with right um yeah um and technically technically it's actually impossible to find a true universal donor that tests negative for all DEA. Okay. So there's seven antigens. So we call them DEA or dog erythrocyte antigens. So that's where we talk about our DEA 1.1. There's DEA 1.3 and I believe DEA 1.7, but most Mm -hmm. of the time we're looking at the first number. So DEA 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. DEA 1 is routine, is routinely tested for in hospitals. So that's what we're normally looking for. 
And actually most dogs are positive for DEA4. So about 98 to 100% of dogs are, are positive for DEA4. So that's why it's impossible to have a true universal donor because you're negative for all the other DEA numbers except for number four. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, and this is, this could account for when you're doing cross matches, right? And you've got the quote unquote Mm -hmm. universal blood. And again, 98 to 100%, we'll just say 98, 98% of dogs are positive for DEA4, but let's Mm -hmm. say you have a DEA4 negative, well, Mm -hmm. they're going to react to the blood that you're trying to give them. So it's, it is kind of that weird Again, well, we don't know everything about blood. <laughs> so and there's a the misconception. There's like a long running misconception too, that DEA 1.1 negative is our universal blood. Mm-hmm. When in all reality, our DEA 4 positive is more of the safest blood, just because the majority of dogs are going to be positive for DEA 4. Mm-hmm. And then so that way, when you do your DEA 1.1 testing, and that dog comes off negative, then yes, DEA 4 is likely going to be the safest bet on giving that dog. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think this is where, you know, the whole, Oh, dogs get a free transfusion, a free first hand mm-hmm, transfusion. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably in the last, I'd say five to 10 years really been kind of debunked. Um, yeah. especially, and I think we've talked about this before, um, where Ken Yagi, um, I think he, he, and he's, been to lectures that both or done lectures both jordan and i have gone to (laughs) yes he's so good yeah he's such a good lecturer and um he you know he was really the first one that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that that is not a thing anymore um Mm -hmm. which is really cool actually uh and so so if you have a dog that sliced open an artery you know and he's bleeding out okay yes you can take your quote unquote universal blood and get it into him without a cross match. Cause a cross match can take yeah 20 minutes and five, 10, 20 minutes depending on how quickly you can get it done. And, and then you just look for reactions, right? Like in yeah. the emergency situation, sometimes you have to do that, but if you don't have an emergency situation and you've got 20 minutes, a half an hour to do a cross match, you should do it because yeah. if we can take away the possibility of a transfusion reaction. It's better um, mm-hmm. because you'd hate to, you know, do more harm than good with a transfusion. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's, that's something that, you know, it is, it is changing. I feel like more and more clinics and doctors recognize the fact that there's not a quote unquote universal, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also up to us to remember and be like, okay, great. We want to do blood transfusion. We're going to cross match and just have it be part of your routine instead of it being something that you go, Oh, do we want to do it? Just say, yes, we want to do it unless there's other circumstances that prevent us from being able to. And not to mention like a lot of dogs are rescues. A lot of dogs, you don't actually know if they've had a blood transfusion in the past Mm -hmm. before. Um, and even if they haven't, sometimes it really just doesn't matter. But anyway, kind of gearing more towards our DEA 1.1 negative, well, DEA 1.1 blood type, we can break that down. I mean, all these DEAs, you can actually break down to positive and negative blood types. <laughs> um, but for the sake of like in clinic and what we normally see, we see DEA 1.1 negative or DEA 1.1 positive. But I have ordered DEA 4 positive blood before, just because again, it's the safer blood. And if it's 
four positives, it implies that all the other DEAs are negative. So, um, yeah. And so DEA 1.1 positive dogs can receive positive and negative blood, which is why they think that the, well, why it was kind of misconstrued that DEA 1.1 negative was universal because positive dogs can receive it Um, versus negative blood type dogs should only receive negative. They're going to probably have a transfusion reaction if you give them positive blood. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, that's something to kind of remember though, too, that positives can have both negatives really should stick with negative. And then, um, so when we kind of get into how to do our blood typing and how to do our cross matching, I'm not going to go through the procedures. I'm just going to kind of go through snippets as to, I was going to say, it's so, it's hard because there are, it, there's There's so many different styles. (laughs) I was going to say there, it's dependent on the manufacturer really for them, for the blood typing. Uh, and (laughs) this is something you're going to do in house because Mm -hmm. have you ever, have you ever looked up the blood typing? Like I, we use IDEX at our clinic. Mm -hmm. Have you ever looked up the blood typing? Uh, I've, I haven't looked it up, but I've sent it out just because for my blood donor program, like I just picked a blood donor profile and sent it. Yeah. So Um, the the funny thing is, is it it is more of like a blood donor profile because it does test for a lot of the um, DEAs, mm -hmm. but it says it takes five to seven working days. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, well, that's not something we're doing in an emergency situation. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, because you're definitely doing these in house. (laughs) Yeah, because Finn would technically be like the he's in my blood donor program. He's a universal because he's DEA four positive and negative for all everything else. Oh, nice. Um, Versus Zara is DEA one point one positive and DEA four positive and negative for everything else. So she is a positive blood type. So I have one of each. but anyway, so blood typing the ones that we do in house and what this does this looks for naturally occurring antibodies within the blood um, to try to just tell you again, if it's positive or negative, A type, B type, cats, AB type. Um, And there's two main ways to do it. And one is a card agglutination test, which I believe they're still doing in a lot of the veterinary technician schools or technology programs. Um, We still have them at my clinic. We use the immunochromatographic test, which is Mm -hmm. It looks like a pregnancy test. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Except for you don't pee on it, you dip it in blood and like, (laughs) yeah. And those ones are quick and simple. Like the card agglutination tests, like the name speaks for itself. Yeah. So basically the wells, there's three wells. There's the auto agglutination, there's the positive and the negative, and they impregnate the, the well with the, um, the antigen for the opposite blood type, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. like the positive is going to have the negative stuff in it and the negative is going to have the positive. So basically they react. Yeah, exactly. Cause you're looking for the reaction. reaction is what type you have. And the reaction you're looking for is agglutination of the blood. So where yeah. it, it kind of like separates and, and looks all spotty. If you haven't seen agglutination, we'll have to try to find like a really good picture of it. Cause I, I think, think I, I have, saw, I think I have pictures. You have to have pictures. Yeah, because like, I did I did a lecture on this, so I definitely have pictures of stuff. So yeah. And then cross matching is a lot more detailed. Again, not gonna go into the how-tos. I'll go into like the different types of tests, but what it does basically is it's an in vitro stimulation of what will happen in vivo. So it's basically what's gonna 
it's going to tell you what's going to happen within the vein if a mm -hmm. transfusion proceeds. Mm -hmm. um, so there's major and minor cross-matching. Major cross-matching is where you try to pair the recipient's serum and mix that with the donor red cells versus a minor cross-matching is mixing the donor serum with a recipient red cells. Yeah, and the way that I taught my students to remember this is, you know, we are giving red blood cells to a patient that's anemic and that's a major thing, right? Like that yes. is the majority of what we want to do when we're doing blood transfusions. So we want to make sure that that animal's body isn't going to attack those red blood cells. So that's the major cross match. We're looking for the red blood cells that are coming in mm -hmm. so the donors, red blood cells, make sure that our patient's not going to attack them and basically null and void our transfusion. Yep. Um, and so that's just kind of, that's how I remember, like the major is we're giving them red blood cells and we want to see what's going to happen. The minor is, you know, there's there, depending on what you give, whether that's a packed red blood cell or whole blood packed red blood cells still technically have a little bit of serum mm -hmm. in it. Not much, but some, cause the, the blood has to be viscous. It can't be just a big clot of <laughs> red blood cells. Um, what? I know it's got to flow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there's still some serum in there as well as like the anticoagulant. Um, and so we want to make sure. And so the minor is, okay, so some serum is coming from the donor. So we want to make sure that serum doesn't attack the recipient re red blood cells that they have. Cause I mean, there's not that many, but we don't want it to attack that. Um, so that's the minor. So again, yeah. our patient that's getting the blood transfusion doesn't have a lot of cells, so it's not that big of a deal, but it, it can be. Um, yeah. so that's just kind of, that's how you can remember major versus minor, because I know it's so hard to remember, like which one's the major cross match and which one's the minor, the major yeah. one is the big deal. We don't want to kill off the red blood cells. Yeah, exactly. So what we're looking for when we do cross-matching is we're going to observe for agglutination or hemolysis because that's what's going to happen within the vein. Either those red cells are all going to separate and try to kind of get away from each other and not mix in properly with the body, or they're going to hemolyze and, and shred. And that's when you see that bilirubinuria and stuff like that too. Mm -hmm. um, a cross-match must be performed in dogs previously transfused. So we kind of briefly touched on that free first transfusion thing. It is kind of still a thing, but I think it is slowly transitioning out. Mm -hmm. um, but if a dog's ever been previously transfused, definitely 100% cross match it because sensitization may have occurred. And that can actually occur within four days after a blood transfusion. I think it's less than that. I thought it was like two to three days. No, I think it's four. Okay. We'll have to look this up because that's really key to know when you have a hospitalized patient. Right? Yeah. Like you can't yeah. just assume that you cross match to that one donor two to three to four days ago and they're, they were negative. Then you can't assume, you know, three, four days later that they're still going to be negative. You have to cross match because they could mm -hmm. have developed antibodies, um, to that blood. So, you, yep. you know, just don't assume that they were previously negative to that one. And you don't have to cross match, still have to cross match. Yep. Yep. Exactly. But the whole theory behind your first free transfusion is because dogs don't have those naturally occurring alloantibodies like cats have. It makes 
the risk of like a hemolytic reaction low during the first transfusion. Now it can still occur, but the risk is a lot lower than in cats. Yep. Actually a compatible serologic cross match does not guarantee normal red blood cell survival or completely eliminate the risk of transfusion reactions. Which so, is why we monitor. <laughs> yep, exactly. So even if you do have a good cross match or a compatible cross match, there's still room for error. There's always lab error. I mean, there's also human error where the test could have been performed incorrectly. But but there's also things that we can't test for, right? That yes, can cause exactly. a reaction. Exactly. Um, but usually we're not going to have that immediate, you know, start pushing and they vomit reaction exactly this is the more like a little bit of a delayed response um Mm -hmm. so because and that's that's usually a reaction to like the donor plasma or white blood cells Mm -hmm. that's the the body reacts to the plasma or the white blood cells that are within the donor blood especially if you're giving whole blood Mm -hmm. and that's not detected by cross-match testing right yeah um, and so there's a couple different ways to perform cross-match testing. Standard test tube test, um, that actually takes practice skill. It takes the, the, is that, that a shouldn't be something cross-match? Yes. Okay. So that shouldn't be performed just by like anybody in the clinic. Like it, it should be accurately performed by like a trained professional. And I know damn well, I did not learn how to do that in tech school. Oh my God. I, so. <laughs> I, I actually taught it in ta- tech school because I think, I think learning about how to do this is one of those skills that you always have in your back pocket because yes. what if you run out of the test kits and oh, yeah. you need to do it? Or let's say you have a patient, you keep cross-matching and you're, you've gone through your kits because you know yeah. we don't keep a million of them in clinic. So yeah. understanding how to do that is huge. Um, yep. So yeah. Exactly. And I agree. I, I think it's something that should still be kind of like a standardized, like have it in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. Gel agglutination is one of the more common, I think, cross-match kits. That's what I use in hospital. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we use, well, we have, I think we have both. Yeah. But I think the gel agglutination is really the one we rely on the most. Mm-hmm. And those um, ones are cool too, because like you have your control, so you have something to kind of go off of. Mm-hmm. Um, you have your positive tube, you have your negative tube. So technically a negative cross match is what you want. So you want. And the, um, the brand on that one. Rapid vet. Rapid vet. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. I was trying yep. to remember it. Yeah. So, so we have the rapid vet. And that test probably takes a good 15 minutes or so because there's incubation there's periods. There's incubate, yeah. Yeah, there's spinning. There's just like reading the instructions properly to make sure you're adding the right amount of drops of everything to everything. Dude, I have those instructions out every single time because I do not want to make it an error. I'm like, nope, we're going to read the instructions because I, I don't want to go off my gut. <laughs> exactly. Like I have those. Done I've done that. so many and it is like easy. I'm like, Oh wait, I know, you know, like I know what I'm doing, but just make sure I don't like, the, have a brain I, fart. Oh, I'm so like neurotic weird. about it too. So I have my, like I'll <laughs> separate my tubes too. So I don't accidentally put a drop of the blue into the green prematurely or like, I'm so <laughs> neurotic about it. I'm just like, I'm not quite that neurotic, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty neurotic about it. Cause I don't want to yeah. screw that up. I don't want to, they're expensive you know. tests. And then like, we don't keep that many in stock. I don't want to go through them. And then yeah. um, the last test is the immune 
immunochromatographic test, which is similar to the, the like the pregnancy test of our, our blood typing. I've never used one of those. I got, I had some donated to me, but then I donated them to a student to use. So just to like practice. Yeah. And I think they're, they're, they're newer on the market. Yeah. Um, they look a lot easier. They do look a lot easier. I think I've used it. And um, I think I'm just setting my ways with the, the gel. Like I like it because it's, well, it's and kind I think, of straightforward. Well, and I think for us, the reason we haven't used it more is I think my doctors said there was more um, research behind the gel agglutination yeah, than the immunochromatographic so far because it was so new. But again, you know, it because it's a newer product, I think there's there's going to be more evidence behind it. And I think then they'll feel mm-hmm. more comfortable with it because it is yeah, an definitely. easier test. Um, so I, it's I think faster. it's, yeah. And I think it's just doctor preference. Um, definitely. I mean, it's just my preference too. Like I said, I still prefer to use the gel because that's what I know. Right. That's how we've always done it. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think if I would ever actually get another box in and like, see how it was really done and like on a true patient, I'd probably lean more towards that just because it looks quicker. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would just be like, what's the, what's the error margin, you know, which is what yeah, my doctors yeah, always care about is what is the margin of error on these tests? Yeah, definitely. And then, um, it is no longer recommended either. So after you do your blood typing and your cross matching and you are actually ready to give a good transfusion or a well managed. Transfusion? Yeah. Yeah. It's no longer recommended to pre-treat patients with Benadryl Dex. I know when I worked in GP years ago, like we didn't do transfusions, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now I know better, Yeah. but it was one of those things we would just bleed a dog, give Dex or Benadryl to the dog we were going to give this blood to and then give it. Well, yeah. And I think, um, I think that really fell out of favor in the last probably five years. Because, Definitely. Um, yeah. Cause I've been in, I am for five. Yeah. And I, and in my GP, we, everybody got pre-treated with Dex and Benadryl. Like that was just the thing. Um, when I started in specialty, which is about, uh, I think it's almost eight years now. Um, you know, we did still pre-treat. And yeah. So, um, you know, it's just, in the last five years. So the theory behind it, right. Is we wanted to pre-treat because we didn't want them to have a transfusion reaction. We wanted them to get to the tra- through the transfusion and not have a reaction. Well, the problem is, so you're suppressing whatever potential reaction a patient mm-hmm. is going to have to something that they're not compatible with. So if you're suppressing that reaction, the theory is during the transfusion, cool, you're not having the reaction. But then once the drugs wear off, then you start seeing the reactions. And those are just as deadly as like during a transfusion. So the idea mm-hmm. is instead of giving 250, 500 mils of something that they're going to react to, as soon as you start seeing a reaction, you stop the transfusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then you treat for it. So, yes. you know, yeah, it used to be that that's what we did. We just pre-treated to prevent the reaction. Well, now we want to know if they're going to have a reaction so we can exactly. stop giving the thing that's going to cause the reaction. Exactly. Exactly. Which I think is a, is a definitely a better plan, obviously. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Let's stop giving the thing that's going to be harmful. <laughs> yeah. Versus like you said, I mean, it's just like, if I were allergic to shellfish, like, let me just take some Benadryl before I eat oh, yeah. five pounds of crab legs Probably just so I can eat the five pounds. But <laughs> right. then, yeah, it's a problem afterwards versus if I don't take Benadryl and then I realize I'm alert, like deathly allergic to, I'm only going to eat maybe like one or two legs and then not have as major of a reaction right. to the minimal amount I've eaten already versus eating all of it and then having my reaction later. So a lot of information in this episode, like I said, next episode is going to be more of the kind of blood products that we know of that we can use in patients, what they're used for, like their indications, how to properly handle them and how to administer. Um, Obviously I'm not going to go into too much detail about how to administer every product because there's a lot of them. Right. Um, And generally they all fall around the same lines, but this week, we're just kind of doing that pre-transfusion. Next week, we're going to dive into the actual transfusing process. It's the tip of the week. Tip of the week this week is, in my opinion, if you are new to transfusions or blood transfusions are new to you, really try to read up on protocols and pre-transfusion processes and administration processes or protocols. Um, I know someone who is on this podcast who wrote an article about how to give blood transfusions what? a couple months back. Who, who, who would that <laughs> What's her name? Jordan? Yeah. To, yeah. So link to that, by the way. We'll, we'll yes. link to it. So feel free to look it up because it, it's kind of like a quick article on just what you're going to look for and, and how to manage your transfusion patients. Again, especially if you're new to transfusions, because it wasn't until I got into internal medicine that I was like, holy cow, there's the right way to do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. And I have, um, I've done a CE lecture, like a race approved CE. So if you guys want that, let us know. Um, and we can see if we can make that available to you guys. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of, um, we got some projects in the work. Yeah. So if, if you've been to our website, so internal medicine for vet and you look kind of up at the top there, there is a thing that says courses and, and that's because <laughs> We are planning on having courses. Um, and so, you know, things are still in the planning phases, but, um, you know, if, if you would like to see some of these things like Jordan's amazing article, um, or if you want to, you know, see the CE that I did on um, cross-matching, because that's what I did is I did a CE on cross-matching. I'm, I'm sure we could talk Jordan into doing one about transfusions, just saying. Oh, definitely. But if you guys like that idea, just let us know um, too. That would be that would be helpful. Because if you don't want to know about yeah. it, then I don't want to spend our time on doing on something if you guys hate the idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everybody's like, no, we don't learn. We don't want to learn more about that. <laughs> They're like, ew, blood. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> Yeah. And then if, if blood transfusions are not new to you, you know, we do recommend that you still have, um, you know, the pamphlet out with the instructions to make sure we don't do it incorrectly because that's what Jordan and I both apparently do. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, just kind of diving back into this, like I do transfusions all the time and I love them. Like I I love blood transfusions. I wrote an article on it. Like I (laughs) love it. But like, I still love learning more because it's also like ever changing. Like it's, yeah, I love it. And, so and speaking, just continue to learn. So yeah. So if you guys are um, blood nerds, like both Jordan and I are, um, we're both members of the Association of Veterinary Hematology and Transfusion Medicine. 
it, it's it's a really cool association to be part of. They are they are trying to see about getting a VTS in hematology and transfusion medicine, um, but so far hasn't happened yet. But they also um, they have a really cool list serve that they um, have questions about, and they have really good resources. So if you ever wanted to see you know kind of that, it's um, AVH. TM, so Association of Veterinary Hematology and Transfusion Medicine dot org. Um, and you can sign up and you can get, you know, they have re resources there. It's really, it's a great, you know, resource to have kind of in your back pocket, um, especially if, yeah. you know, you're running the blood transfusion or the blood donor program at your clinic. Because um, mm -hmm. usually there's that one person who's dorky and really likes it. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. And now for the question of the week. So our question of the week this week is, does your clinic perform blood transfusions? And if so, what's your pre-transfusion protocol? So what do you do? Do you do just blood typing and then administer? Um, because that's what I do, unless they've been previously transfused and we do cross-matching. We should probably cross-match every, but we don't. And if not, if you work in GP like I used to, again, no judgment, definitely not, because I know more now than I did back when I was giving blood transfusions six years ago. Right. So, um, and if you don't have a protocol in place and you want like more information, this is obviously a great episode. Um, we have lots of great resources. So definitely just hit us up and we can lead you in the right direction. Um, because if your protocol is just give blood again, been there, done that. And I understand and Your no judgment is pre-treat and give blood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No problem. Just let us know and just say, Hey, you know, we learned a lot from this episode. Um, and, and we like to see those comments on our Facebook podcast group. So it's the internal medicine for vet techs podcast group on Facebook. And then of course our website will have, you can leave comments there too. And we have our email address that you can send us to. If you don't want to make it like overly public that, you know, Maybe things aren't done right, but again, I've been there. No judgment. You can always email us at podcast at internalmedicineforvettex.com. And we love to read emails from people. We love to read comments from people. And I know right now is kind of a crazy time, but it's also a good time where I'm modifying my mm. transfusion monitoring sheet because I'm, you know, home. And <laughs> so yeah. I was going to say for, for people that are at home instead of in clinics, I think I'm finally at the point now because I'm a month into this <laughs> craziness where my brain doesn't feel so overloaded with everything at work that I'm starting yeah. to go, okay, well, on my days off because it, you know, there's, there's been some extra days off that I wouldn't normally have, you know, what can I do? You know, is there protocols I can work on? Is there something I can learn? Is there something I need to catch up on? And I think my brain is finally at the point where I'm not so overwhelmed that I want to yeah. smash my head into a wall every night. <laughs> um, so, you know, if, if, you know, you want, you have questions, let us know. There's plenty of people in there, our Facebook group too, that are very smart. There's some very smart people in there, yes. even smarter than us. And so yep. definitely, you know, reach out. Um, Cause I feel like I'm starting to get used to this, like reaching out <laughs> instead of going to somebody's house, I'm practicing my social distancing. So online is great. <laughs> yeah. So this will wrap up this episode um, on our veterinary transfusion medicine part one. Part two is coming next week. Very excited Yay! for it. And then, um, like I said, definitely hit us up. Keep listening. Keep learning. Keep letting us know 
anything specific you want to hear because we are also brainstorming our next series. Um, yes. So let us know. And then we will talk with you guys next week. Yeah. Well, have a wonderful week. You guys keep learning, keep pushing and being the best amazing vet tech that you can be in this time of being an essential worker. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll talk to you later. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.